Did you ever notice how you can't please some people? It's true. I've met a lot of folks in my life that just don't seem to be happy about anything. It's a crazy way to live, if you ask me. To live your life always seeing the glass half empty. By contrast, we love happy endings, don't we? We love fairy tales, stories where the good guys win, the bad guys lose, and that poor young commoner wins the hand of the beautiful princess. It reminds me of the immortal words of Hannibal Smith, leader of the A-team, who would say at the end of every successful mission, I love it when a plan comes together. Well, this is our final stop in this series of messages from the Old Testament book of Jonah. And in case you've missed the earlier messages, let me give you a quick recap. So far, the plan for Jonah's life seems to have come together pretty well. God called Jonah. Jonah ran away. God sent a storm. Jonah went to sleep. The sailors throw Jonah overboard. The storm ends. The sailors worship God. God sends a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah spends three days and three nights in the great fish. And all of that is in chapter one of this wonderful little book. Eventually, Jonah goes on to the great city of Nineveh and preaches an eight-word sermon. The whole city repents. God relents and does not send his judgment on them. It is the greatest revival in history. You would think Jonah would be happy, but no, you just can't please some people. Let's look at how this story ends today in Jonah chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. I don't know about you, but I'm struck by the words here in verse 1, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. You know, you can focus on the words change of plans there because that's the key to the entire chapter. What change of plans, you ask? The fact that God is no longer going to destroy Nineveh. That's the change that has him so upset. Jonah's attitude has been quite clear from the beginning. I'm fine, Lord, as long as you send all of them Ninevites straight to eternal damnation. Pull the lever, open the trap door, do whatever you have to do, but bring your judgment on those bad people. That's how Jonah felt. The fact that God showed mercy on them was a great evil to Jonah. Now that is a literal translation from the Hebrew text for the words greatly upset Jonah. He really saw it as a great evil, even though God is showing grace to the Ninevites. Now at last we understand why Jonah was so reluctant to go to Nineveh in the first place. Verse two, I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. And that is a reference 
to Exodus, an earlier book in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 34, one of the greatest statements in the Old Testament about God's character. These were words spoken to Moses on the mountain when he was receiving the Ten Commandments. And it said, the Lord passes, passed in front of Moses and called out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren, even children in the third and fourth generations. Now here's the irony of this story. Jonah was fine with mercy when he received it, but he couldn't handle it when God showed mercy to Nineveh. One writer brought this truth home this way. You can tell you have made God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. You can tell you've made God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do. So Jonah says, I wish I was dead. Now talk about a miserable, rotten, no good attitude. And this was God's man. This was God's prophet. In the belly of the great fish, he was about uh, to die and he prayed, oh God, please let me live. Now after the greatest triumph of his life, he's praying, oh God, please let me die. Now we may read this book and ask, God, what are you going to do about Nineveh? But the real question turns out to be, God, what are you going to do about Jonah? You see, God knows how to deal with wicked sinners. He saves them. But maybe we should be asking, what's God going to do with people like us? When sometimes we're smug, at times we're arrogant, sometimes apathetic. How is God going to ultimately deal with us? That's a much bigger question, and it turns out that there's little, a little Jonah in all of us, and there is a lot of Jonah in most of us. So Jonah now leaves Nineveh, and he goes out east of the city, and he's still hoping against hope that God's going to send down fire and brimstone and destroy this city. And when that happens, he'll be out here at the edge of town, and he'll have a front row seat to watch it all happen. But God has other plans. Three things happen in short order, all of them caused by God. Verse six, and the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and, as soon, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah, Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Verse seven, the very next verse, but God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. Verse eight, and as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a, searching, or a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah, and the sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. The leafy plant was good because it gave Jonah shade. The worm was bad in Jonah's eyes because it chewed up the vine. And the east wind was very bad in Jonah's eyes because it caused him great discomfort. And yet all of these things came from God. 
The same God who provided the vine and sent the worm and the scorching wind. The real question boils down to this. Will Jonah be happy with God only when God makes him happy? What will he do when God doesn't live up to his expectations? And really, that's a great question for us to be asking ourselves. Are we happy with God only when God makes us happy? Do we still have faith when God doesn't live up to our expectations? This little drama raises a fascinating question that the book itself really doesn't answer. Does Jonah ever repent of his attitude? The first time God calls Jonah, he runs away in chapter 1. The second time God calls him in chapter 3, he obeys God. So the answer is, Maybe yes. Maybe he repented if we stop reading at the end of chapter 3. But if we continue to the end of chapter 4, the answer seems like maybe no. Because there isn't the slightest statement in chapter 4 that shows any hint of repentance. Or maybe the answer is yes and no. God never said, go to Nineveh, Jonah, and have a good attitude. He just said, go to Nineveh and preach. That leads me to a frightening and serious conclusion. Maybe it's perfectly possible for us to obey God even when we have a rotten attitude. That, in fact, seems to describe Jonah from beginning to end. At no point does he seem willing to obey God out of joy in the Lord or compassion for the lost. Even in the belly of the fish, when he prays the great prayer in chapter 2, it's as if God uh, has him backed into a corner. So he turns his heart to God because there's, there's no other choice. And while I admit that it's a very human thing to do, it doesn't speak very positively about his love for God. And as I reflected on this mystery, I remembered the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, where he says that some preach Christ out of selfish ambition and even false motives. Now, whatever that may mean, we know that some sort of preaching, uh, we know that that sort of preaching can't be a good thing. It doesn't seem to bother Paul uh, as much as it might bother us that someone is preaching out of false motives or selfish ambition, but Paul is just glad that Christ is being preached. Now, I conclude from all of that that we will sometimes, uh, maybe even oftentimes, serve Christ when our motives are far from pure. I remember being shocked many years ago when I heard a pastor say that he had rarely done anything in his life without mixed motives, and that pastor was confessing an obvious truth. This side of heaven, even our best deeds and our noblest acts will be tainted with self-interest. Tim Keller has commented, we must learn how to repent of the sin that lies underneath all the other sins and under our righteousness, and that is the sin of seeking to be our own savior. That's the sin that we need to repent of most. You see, to say it another way, instead of patting ourselves on the back for our good deeds, maybe we need to repent of the pride that we take in doing those good deeds in the first place. Because without God, we would never do anything good at all. 
You see, sometimes even our best deeds are tainted by a little sin. It's surprisingly easy to do the right thing for the wrong reason and still be blessed. But we must not stop there because God is never satisfied with, more, with mere outward obedience. He wants us to obey from the heart with gladness, not grudgingly. And he's gonna send a vine or a worm or a scorching wind to reveal our inner rottenness so that our hearts can be transformed. One final note on the question of Jonah's repentance. I've been pretty hard over these six weeks on this prophet of God and deservedly so, but where did this story come from? How did it end up in the Bible? Only one man knew all the details. And I think that man cared enough to write down his story. If Jonah was, the, was this honest about his own spiritual journey, maybe the very existence of the book means that he did at last repent of his stinky attitude toward God and toward the people that God loves. And since the book ends with a question, that means that the final response must come not from the prophet, but from you and me. Look at verse 11, because it reveals God's heart. It says, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Jonah's story ends not with a statement, but with a question. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And the answer, of course, is yes. God is concerned about this great city, and therefore Jonah should be concerned about it too. By ending in a question and not in a declaration, the book leaves the issue hanging in the air. Will we have a God's heart for the Ninevehs of this world? Or will we hate them, as Jonah did? I think this story speaks to all of us who would rather not get involved in the world. We'd rather, you know, be comfy and cozy and keep it nice and clean inside the four walls of our church or our home or our safe place. But the reality is the world we live in is a messy place. There's another way of looking at this whole issue. Jonah has two problems on the surface his problem is that he has no heart for the people of Nineveh. But his real problem is even deeper. He has no room for the God who does. Here's the bottom line. Jonah's real problem is God. His God is too small, and that's why his heart is too small. And I wonder if that could be true oftentimes of us. It's interesting, isn't it, that God's greatest problem is not with the wicked people of Nineveh. The, the moment they heard the message, they believed. Oh, they were truly evil, no doubt about it, but they repented. Their hearts were changed. It's a sobering thought that in the book of Jonah, the pagans were quicker to believe than was the man of God. That's true of the pagan sailors in chapter 1. That's true of the people of Nineveh in chapter 3. We sometimes think in some sort of a dismissive way that the whole world is going to hell, and maybe that's true in some ways, but that's not the problem. The problem with the world is not the world. The problem with the world is right here in the church. 
The problem is not the sinful excesses of the world that we see all around us. The problem is that we are often running the other way so we don't have to love the world that God loves. The problem is not the gross evil that we're so quick to condemn. The problem is that we're not praying for the people who live in the wickedness that we say we hate so much. Their sin has made them detestable to us so we don't even bother to pray for them. See, God's greatest problem is not the sinner out there. His greatest problem is the saint in here. We're a lot more like Jonah than we would ever like to admit. That's why we laugh and then we squirm a bit and there's a whole lot of Jonah inside most of us. So let me wrap up this whole study of Jonah with three lessons that I think will bring home God's truth to our hearts. And the first one is this, God loves Nineveh. Where is Nineveh today? Well, Nineveh could be Chicago or Philadelphia or London or Baghdad or any other city teeming with millions of people. But you know what? Nineveh can also be your neighbor next door. You know, the one that you don't like because he doesn't take care of his yard, who makes too much noise, whose kids are getting into trouble all the time. Nineveh might be your boss, who's a real jerk. Or the guy in the next cubicle, or the woman down the hall who's such a drama queen and thinks the whole world is about her. Nineveh could be your ex-husband who's not easy for you to love. Nineveh might be your ex-wife who you'd rather never see again. Nineveh might be your neighbor, or your banker, or your hairdresser. You see, Nineveh is not just a place. Nineveh is a symbol for the people of the world and wherever you find people, whether that's here in DeWitt or in Lansing or wherever, there you find Nineveh in all of its splendor and power and glory as well as all of its greed and brutality and evil. It's all there and it's all mixed together, the good with the bad, the light with the darkness. Look around you, we live in Nineveh. We work in Nineveh. All our life is lived in and around that great city and no one can escape it. But the message is clear. God loves Nineveh. He still loves people who work hard for a living. He loves the thousands of people who work long hours each day. He loves the workers who use their trade in some mammoth factory in the heart of the city. Sometimes we see only the evil in the world and we think God must hate us. No, God loves us. And nothing we can do can make him stop loving us. He sees all the sin. Not a tiniest speck of it escapes his vision, but it, he does not turn his back. He has a heart of love. God loves Nineveh. Secondly, God is still willing to do whatever it takes to get us to go to Nineveh. For Jonah, that meant spending three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And the question is, what will God have to do do to us, to get us to fully obey him. See, a lot of churches today are filled with the modern day Jonas who have taken a holiday cruise on a ship to Tarshish. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe God has spoken to you and you've said to God, you know, I don't think I can do that. If so, I've got good news for you and I've got bad news for you. The good news is don't worry about the great storm that's gonna be on the horizon. The bad news is you better start worrying about the great fish that's out there because it is waiting. 
The old gospel song includes a line that says, God doesn't make you go against your will. He just makes you willing to go. How true that is. God won't force us to go to Nineveh, but he will make our life miserable until we willingly decide to do what God has called us to do. What will God have to do to get us to obey him fully? And then the third point is Nineveh needs us. Think about this. For all of its cruelty and sinful brutality, Nineveh was ready to turn to God. The people didn't know it. They weren't consciously aware of their need. They weren't intentionally looking for God. But the God who sees all things knew that this vile city was primed and ready to turn to him if only he could find the right person with the right message who would dare to go there and deliver God's message. And Jonah was God's man for Nineveh. See, the world is full of Ninevehs today, and God is still looking for someone to go and share his message. Nineveh was a literal city, but it also stands for more than that. It stands for that that place that only you can go, that person that only you can reach, that opportunity that only you can fill. You've got a Nineveh in your life right now. All of us do. It might be a friend where you work. It might be that group you hang around with after school. It might be your neighbor down the street or some of the folks in the PTA or the people on your bowling team. Who knows? Your Nineveh might be your husband or your wife or even your grown-up children. Your Nineveh might be someone you love whose behavior has provoked you to the point of anger and bitterness. Your Nineveh might be a new job or a new city or a new home or a new street. Nineveh ultimately stands for any part of the will of God that you're afraid to face today. You're afraid to go, but God wants you to go. You're afraid to speak up, but there are people who need to hear what you have to say. You're afraid to make a move, but God says, trust me. See, Nineveh is calling you today. What are you going to do about it? God wants you in Nineveh, but you don't want to go. You'd rather go to Tarshish. Well, fine, but watch out for the great fish, because it's coming. See, the world is evil. The world is mean. Will you speak up anyway? People are cruel. Will you tell them about God's love? You say, I don't want to go. God says, I'll just make you willing to go. He doesn't make us go against our will. He just makes us willing. And at this point, I'm reminded of that commercial about a car that breaks down and the voiceover says, you can do this the easy way or you can do it the hard way. The point being that prevention costs a lot less sometimes than the repair work. In a sense, that's what God is saying in this book of Jonah. We can do it the easy way or we can do it the hard way. But we are going to do it because God has got a great, great big heart. And he's not going to let us sit around silently while his children are disobeying him. You may say, where is the good news, Rod, in this whole story? And I think that the good news is all over this story. That's why no, uh, Jesus said in, in Matthew 12, he said, there, uh, that's why no sign will be given other than the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
And later in Luke 11, Jesus said, no one greater than, or, or, uh, and now one greater than Jonah is here. See, Jesus referenced this tiny little book and placed Jonah way up here on the pedestal of faith. For God so loved Nineveh that he gave his only son that whoever in Nineveh believes should not perish but have everlasting life. Thomas Carlyle wrote a poem called You, Jonah. And the last two stanzas go like this. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and he waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonas in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. Let's pray. Father, expand our vision today to see the world as you see it. Please make us less like Jonah and more like Jesus. Grant us a fresh concern for those that we meet Renew in us a compassion for those who by nature would be repulsive to us. Lord, do some divine heart surgery in us and replace our anger and our fear and our hesitation with your love. May the Holy Spirit fill us with true compassion in every part of our being. Give us your tears for the Ninevehs all around us and give us hearts to go gladly with the good news to share. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.